So today I have the pleasure of being joined by my good friend, Jack Crowley. And Jack is uh, an experienced outdoorsman, hardcore backpacker. Uh, we've been doing trips together for years. Uh, he's a great guy, a uh, real tough man out there. And I really appreciate your time, Jack. Thanks for joining. Thanks, Lee, for having me. Well, before we get started here, um, just wanted to kind of maybe rehash how, you know, you and I, well, in a way, kind of got to know each other. We we did know each other beforehand, but we really right. sort of met on an outdoor adventure. Um, yeah. And I, yeah. I don't know if you want to rehash that and kind of how sure. that all came about. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you know, you're, you were previously sort of family friends with my wife and um, at the in in the uh early 2000s we were living in germany and we were traveling uh around we happened to be in portugal with my family and uh we got some kind of a, a note from you or i think my wife uh, got a telephone call saying that you were going to be uh traveling through portugal so we we met you there and i really you know met you for the first time and uh, uh we we did some touring and, and you were on a round the world ticket. So you, I think were probably a month into your journey and uh, you, you, you were telling me where you were going to go and uh, that you were going to be in one thing in Africa. Um, so I, I said, well, if you ever climb Kilimanjaro, give me a call. And about eight months later, I got an email saying, Hey, you want to join me in, in uh, you know, to, to climb Kili. So yeah, that I think was... that's right. I I just finished a work assignment in Europe, and yeah, and I I bought a a plane ticket, kind of these multi hop things. Anyway, long story, but uh, yeah. I was spending several months in Africa, uh, a couple months, something like that. And um, I, I think actually first your wife mentioned to me, she's like, "Hey, Jack's always wanted to do Kilimanjaro," which really wasn't on my radar. I mean, I'd done some backpacking for trips, although nothing to that um, extent of almost twenty thousand feet. And so I got in Africa and traveled through the whole uh, southern part of the continent over, you know, like I said, a couple months. <laughs> and then I got to, uh, I think it was Moshi uh, is where yeah. I was. Yeah. And uh, so I sent an email and you responded within 24 hours and said, I bought my ticket. And I was like, uh-oh, <laughs> now, yeah. now what am I going to yeah. do? I'm really, I'm really down for it. And I had no gear. That was the... I guess the funny thing I brought it up is that it had nothing. And so I, if I remember correctly, you and I corresponded on, this is sort of pre-internet phone call days is 20 years ago, or anyway, it didn't work over there. And so you were like, what do you need? And and I was like, well, I basically everything, I got nothing. I had some more of a travel backpack, but anyway, you were great. You brought a bunch of stuff right. um, and uh, kind of got a cheap rain suit. I won't mention right. the brand name. Right. But uh, anyway, yeah, that was a pretty amazing trip. What what do you remember from that kind of the highlights or lowlights? You know, I, it, it was, you're right. It was before the age of uh, cell phones. So it was that uh, email that I got from you. And then, you know, I traveled halfway around the world and I was at a picnic bench in uh, Moshi or wherever it was and uh, under a jacaranda tree, you know, and you just kind of sauntered up and said, Hey, how you doing? I mean, it was, a different world back then, uh, you know, much harder to communicate, but, um, I, 
I just, you know, it, it was, it was really the beginning of our, my backpacking, uh, adventure, uh, doing that, doing that for the first time. Um, but we, uh, from there, I think we traveled through town and made our way to, uh, you know, we, we had, uh, tour operators besieging us, uh, as we walked down the street, uh, all unreliable. And, um, I think you, we both had the good sense to, uh, try to find a, a good place. And we ended up in the, uh, I think American Express office and, um, booked a tour and, uh, you know, um, yeah, just for to... those listening. Yeah. You can't go on Kilimanjaro on your own. You have to go with an operator and right, they have right. to be kitted out and yeah, yeah. A whole outfitter arrangement. <clears throat> yeah. So we, we, we looked at what the options were and, um, you know, one of them was to go up the Coca-Cola route, which was the, I don't know, seven day version. And we, you know, decided we wanted the full experience. So we started on the backside of the mountain and took about 11 days to do it, um, which turned out to be a good idea because, uh, you know, we didn't know at the time, but acclimatization is really a key factor in a climb where you're going to go above 14,000 feet, I think. Really yeah. I, 13. I think if I remember correctly, we did uh, Lamoshu. Right. Um, That's it. it and I, I think the whole thing was probably more like seven days or something, but we it, actually that's part of another story, which we might say for another time. But we got off to a very inauspicious start, as you recall, uh, which fortunately we're still here to tell we, the tale. <laughs> we our guide rolled the vehicle on the way up the mountain and uh, uh, threw Lee into a washing machine. He ended up um, dislocating his arm and I uh, had a pretty good gash on my. Left yeah, you end up getting about what fifty stitches or something. Dra- dragging out a dragging out a broken open window. Yeah. Yeah, was, yeah. I dislocated my shoulder, which popped back in on the way yeah. to the hospital. But yeah. Anyway, that was the whole thing. But we reconvened a couple days later and and did yeah. it again. I was in a sling, but uh, had a couple surgeries afterwards. But that's all right. That was just yeah. I, I think story. I think on the way on the way to the hospital, I pointed back and said, "Lee, we're climbing that mountain." <laughs> yeah so, you might um, add an expletive in there as well but <laughs> yeah yeah anyway yeah that's uh i i suppose that's a good place to start is uh safety right so make sure you have a good driver uh or know what you're doing up the mountain and yeah, uh, although actually in all seriousness like in um in my wilderness survival classes when they talk about like vehicle prep this was more operator error in that case but uh anyway yeah we made it and uh, since we started on that you remember some of the difficulties we had or or mistakes we made i i mean not that we were the ones you know leading yeah. it and it's not a technical yeah. climb um no, you know no, no, no crampons or anything like that required. But yeah, what do you recall from that trip? Because I know you wrote a whole journal about it, which was fantastic. I, to I did, yeah, I journaled it. It was, uh, yeah, it turned out to be good to record some of that stuff for myself. And and I would recommend that for anybody really that's going on a a long journey like this to um, write it down. It it's, can be very meaningful. Um, uh, it, yeah, what I remember is we we got in and uh, the first thing we noticed was that it was started to rain. And I think it rained for the first three days we were there. Um, it was it wasn't a technical hike and we had porters carrying our stuff for us. So it was actually almost luxurious. But we 
we had, um, I don't know, the, the really low quality rain gear. And um, after about a day, it started to, uh, you know, holes started to pop in out of it. And as we climbed higher, it started to get colder. I think on the third or fourth day, we were huddled underneath uh, a rock cliff eating lunch, just trying to stay warm and, you know, warm and as, uh, you know, as wet as uh, otters, you know, it, it was, it was pretty brutal. Uh, yeah. The three things I remember from that and just kind of jotting down um, going through my mind before we uh, jumped on here was, you know, anywhere you go, you should know the, the hazards or conditions. And obviously one of those is weather and we weren't really prepared for that. And and not that we ran into really terrible weather, but, you know, I certainly didn't have the gear for it. If you remember, I had holes all in my boots and, you know, got soaked, which was a, such a big deal lower down. But when we got above 15,000 feet, that started to become somewhat of an issue. Uh, and, and we got a little bit of snow on us, not much. Um, and then the other thing, of course, which is a really big deal there is the altitude. Yeah. Or AMS. Altitude. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, not really yeah. a way to prepare for that other than, I don't know if you well, want to tell that story about the well, kid I, we I met. Mean, <laughs> I think there there is a way to prepare and that's to be smart and try, you know, once you hit 10,000 feet, the rule is don't climb more than 2,000 and stay at that altitude in a day. Um, it's okay to climb high, but you want to sleep low. So, you know, if you went to from 10 to 13,000 feet and then back down to 12 for the night that, you know, that would be okay. But um, yeah, we, while we were there, uh, I think it was still raining at the time. Um, we saw this kid from uh, the California area and he was, you know, he was in peak physical condition. He was really an inspiring climber. He was uh, free climbing uh, rock face and, you know, made his way down and um, told us that he was going to, continue and climb to the summit that day and it was um it was probably the seventh day into the climb for him so we were you know he he was going to go from what do you think we're at like 13,000 there maybe something like that yeah so he was going to climb from 12 or 13,000 I think we're at the brank just before the Branku uh peak Branku Branka Yeah. Yeah. The little Uh, canyon there. Yeah. He was going to climb up to the top. So it's uh, like 19,800, I think. So um, he was going to do that in the morning. And, you know, we were, we were just awed by it. And we we went to our guide and said to him, Hey, should we join him? You know, can we, can we keep climbing? And um, the the guy's name was Nicholas and he was really a a sage, um, Mm. a sage guide. He, he told us, and his English wasn't that good, but basically he said, don't do it, guys. Your your chances of getting there are more than doubled if you just take another few days to acclimate. And um, we ended up seeing that kid the next day as we climbed over the Branco ledge. He was he he was on a rock and he had his head in his hands and he just looked devastated. And he was uh, begging for uh, the guides to take him on, you know, um, with the provisions that they had. And I mean, you're, you're kind of, it's a one-way trip. Once you, once you use up your provisions for that day, you don't have enough to keep going for another two or three days. So he, you know, he was forced to go down and, and, you know, not make it to the top. 
Yeah, that's an expensive mistake, not to mention um, and not to deter anyone from doing this, but uh, the AMS thing can be serious. And, and if I remember correctly, I think there was a Japanese man who died where we were up there. Yeah, um, there was. Guy, we heard it from somebody else. Our guide, yeah, Nicholas, didn't want to tell us. Uh, but, yeah, I think he was – I can't remember the highest base camp up there, but he was sleeping up there. I think went, tried to go to the latrine or something at night and yeah. had a car, cardiac or something uh yeah so yeah and and i know i think that's a great point you made about you know climbing high but then coming back down to sleep and not trying to do too much elevation in one day and acclimatizing because that's really you know all the stories talk about that and i've had personal experiences too where you know sometimes it doesn't affect you and then you're in same physical shape condition and you go back up another trip and wham you know it kind of waylays you um and that was in yeah. fact I, I remember the night we made the uh ascent to the peak i think we got up about midnight we only had like three hours of sleep or something and um on the way up we we saw some european you know older gentleman yeah. but may had his had his head down and you know just you could tell he was just cratered and um you know and i know you and i both kind of had our struggles um it, but, it, but, yeah. but we but we made it up there we did, yeah. No, and um, I had the same, a similar thing happened to me in Nepal. I did the around Annapurna Loop, mm-hmm. which goes up to about 15,000 feet, you know, significantly lower than um, Kilimanjaro, but uh, it's, you know, and I think I underestimated it. I completely underestimated it. So I was, I was at like 11,000 maybe, and um at a table with some people that I didn't know from another group. And, and my guide said, okay, let's go. He got up to leave and they said, what, where are you going? And and I said, well, you know, my guide's telling me I got to go. Um, and they were like, no, the doctor said we need another day here to acclimate. And, um, you know, they were on the high end version of the tour. I was, I, I went with a low budget guide that trip. And, um, you know, I, we, we climbed up to about 14,000 feet about a thousand under the ridge that we had to get over. And, um, and that night I felt I I had a splitting headache. Um, I, you know, I probably put myself in danger. Uh, lucky, luckily I woke up and I mean, I don't think I slept much, but my guide came in and said, okay, let's go in the morning. And I, you know, made it over. And, and as soon as you descend, you feel better. Uh, so, you know, as soon as I got back to, the lower elevation on the other side, I was okay, but, um, it's, it's, it is a real thing that you really need to respect. I was fortunate. I, uh, I think I had a headache the day before we got top of Killy and then, um, and then, but on the morning of the ascent, I was fine. I, I think you had a few issues, but anyway, everybody's different and every time's different. That's right. And that's a good story that, the, yeah, the other thing I learned from that, um, you know, one was the preparation, know your hazards, you know, like know the weather, you know, in this case, altitude, you know, have a plan. I think that's so important. Um, in this case, there are no wildlife hazards, but, you know, if you're in an area, there's dangerous animals, obviously, or potentially dangerous animals, I should say. Um, and you need something like bear spray as an example, or carry a firearm if you're allowed to in that area. Um, and then the other thing is equipment. Maybe we can jump into that a little bit here. Um, again, I was woefully underprepared uh, on that one. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in terms of having the right and, and 
having said that, I think it is important to be resourceful. I remember that I was like the raincoat you bought me was like all tore up and I was, I fortunately had some safety pins and was, you know, trying to piece it back together. And then I think at one point, um, if I remember correctly, I, and I'm not saying this is the best thing to do, but my feet were getting so cold and soaked and I had run out of socks that I, I put plastic bags around my feet and uh, rubber bands uh, around my ankles. I, I think you also used butter to, uh, I, yeah, to my shoes. Seal the, seal the yeah. Shoes. I'm not well, sure that worked too well. Too but... <laughs> too oh. Yeah. But uh, the plastic bags helped, although they had a downside because I sweat in there, but that was better than, you know, having snow melt or, or, you know, very cold rain. It was just above freezing from coming in. But anyway, uh, yeah. so that's always important, but in terms of equipment, um, you know, one of the big things I think about, you know, when you're doing any trip like this, in this case, we were really just carrying more day packs, but if you're carrying all your own equipment, you don't have porters, whatever is, you know, obviously having the right kind of gear. And one of the things I think people first look at if they're doing a lawn trip is, you know, do I, do I take everything I need or try to go ultralight? I, I wonder if you, you know, share your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, I'll, you know, I'll say like, I'm remembering back to some of our hikes and one of the, one of the early ones we did after we got back from Africa and was in Colorado and uh, the um, we, I, I way overpacked, you know, early on when I started hiking, um, I think I had, you know, like a, a full snow jacket and um, I had, uh, you know, gear that was just way too heavy Um uh, a sleeping bag that, you know, I, I had from younger days that was two or three times the weight of a, of a good bag. Um, so, uh, I, I think you have to be, you know, you have to be smart what you what you pack, like in, in terms of, uh, staying warm, layering is a good thing to do. Uh, you know, so if you have multiple jackets that you can use for, uh, when the temperature gets hot, you know, a lot of times it's cold in the morning and it gets warmer during the day. Right. So you, if you're, if you're, uh, dressed in layers, then you can shed layers and, you know, just, uh, throw them on the straps in your backpack. And, and as it gets warmer during the day, and then, you know, as it gets colder at night, again, you, you relayer up rather than having, you know, multiple jackets like I did. Um, and yeah, uh, I, yeah, and I want to ask you more about clothing in a minute. I, I but I'm glad you brought up a good point there because I, you know me, especially early on, I'd like chronically overpack, and then right. I, I kind of came up with a saying or an aphorism that um, I don't know works for me, and I, I think it's generally a good rule to follow. It's it's better to slightly overpack than underpack, but it's better to slightly underpack than to greatly overpack, and. Uh-huh. And what I mean by that is that, yeah. you know, if you pack in everything and, and this is it, especially if you're doing a long trip. Right. And, you know, we've we've typically done some not hundreds of miles, but, you know, 40, mm-hmm. 50, 70 miles where you're in there for a week okay. or more um, that man, that gear, it it gets heavy, especially early on when you've got all your food still. And so, you know, if you don't really need something, then, yeah, I would say don't take it. You know, that old rule of pack and then, you know, take out a third or a half. I don't know if you take out a half. And, of course, there's right. a minimum anyway that you need, right? You know, your pack, your cooking gear, all that. But I do think it's definitely a big penalty for overpacking. And 
uh, first couple of trips, I didn't have very good pack, you know, and um, that yeah. added a lot of weight uh, as well in my case. Uh, the other thing too is that um, I think that uh, you know, people tend to overlook at times, especially they're just getting into it. And maybe you can speak to this is cheap gear versus quality gear. Not so much the weight, but I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or experiences. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Um, it's worthwhile to have, especially in your key gear, your, um, your sleeping bag, sleeping mat, um, your, your backpack and your tent. I think those all, they, they add such a significant amount of weight that you're going to want to get, um, high quality so that they last, you know, 10 years or 15 years. I think that's a good lifetime. And, and also that they're, uh, you get the the low weight version, you know, sturdy, but, uh, low weight. Um, it, it contributes, you know, proportionally to the overall weight that you're carrying more. Um, but it's, yeah, you, it, it's worth to spend the more money on, on better gear I, for, I, for the essentials. Yeah. I totally agree. And the two things also I would add to that would be shoes and, and doesn't mean it has to be, you know, 500 dollar pair of shoes but yeah at least if they're comfortable they're sturdy they're not going to blow out on you if you need them to be waterproof obviously and and then the other uh piece of that as well is is whatever you're using for both water purification as well as holding water <laughs> i had a yeah. story a friend of mine I was doing a, a packing trip in the uh, black hills in south dakota which isn't a huge area but uh, I came there and I had my, my dromedary camelback, whatever. And, um, it was, it was a good brand from a reliable outfitter, uh, store at REI or something. And he was kind of laughing at me how much I paid. And he just picked one up from, um, I don't want to say what store, but, uh, basically a, a low end store. And, and he was kind of laughing by third day, his had a leak and it wasn't working anymore. I'm still using the one that I had, and this is 15 years old now. I probably yeah. should replace it now, but you know, that was a real, it's like, okay, it was $20 more, but you know, not only it saved me on that trip, I've gotten years more out of it. So, um, yeah. And, and, and a sidebar on the gear is, um, it's important how you store your gear in the off season. So, um, like, uh, your sleeping bag, you know, you're going to hang it, uh, in a closet or something, your mat, it, you, you're going to want to like put it under your bed. But what, what you don't want to do is I, and I made this mistake on my first pair of uh, hiking boots is leave them in the garage where, you know, mm. I'm in Texas, it's a hundred degrees here in the summertime. And that's that pair of boots lasted me like two years because the, um, the plastics in them just don't last uh, in the, in the extreme heat. So you do want to take care of your gear. Um, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. Um, I, I have a lot of mine in a shed now too, which I probably shouldn't, but yeah, that's, yeah, especially your shoes, anything with, um, of course, kind of your background, uh, um, being a chemical engineer, but, you know, knowing about, you know, epoxies and all those compounds that, you know, are likely to degrade much more quickly under, you know, environmental extremes. Yeah. Your tent also has a lot of components in it that don't age well in heat. Um, Yeah, that's actually, I'm glad you mentioned the tent too, because uh, one of the other stories, uh, I don't necessarily like to tell this, but it's full disclosure because I kind of felt like a fool when he did this. 
is I think when you get to an area, particularly if it's an area that you're not familiar with, or even if you've been there before, a different time of year, different set of conditions, is to check in, um, you know, check the weather, talk to uh, if there are rangers there or, you know, uh, wilderness office, forest service office, what have you, is to find out what's going on. You know, and that could be anything from, you know, weather forecast to fire conditions, you know, uh, any particular problems with wildlife. And I remember in one particular trip, um, you know, we went to the Sierras, I think it was early October and, you know, we're planning going in for about two weeks and we're driving in and man, it it was pretty cold and we're only at about 4,000, 5,000 feet. And I remember uh, the ranger, we asked him coming in and he said, we don't usually get this weather until Thanksgiving, which was a full six, seven weeks away. And, you know, I was thinking more because we were going in so long of, you know, kind of not ultra light, but, you know, lightening the load. And I had a uh, uh, really is a three man tent, but it's more of a comfortable two two person tent. But you could rig it without the actual tent where you could just rig the fly and the tarp underneath, uh, which saved a lot of weight, saved like three pounds or something like that, maybe more. And so I remember we went up and I, I don't. It was pretty much straight up hike the first day, but we didn't get that far in, I think six miles. And so, you know, maybe we're at 9,000 feet, 8,000, something like that. And man, that was a cold night. And I had a warm bag. I think you did too. Yeah. And woke up the next morning and we had, we had seen the forecast, but really hadn't paid attention to it. And, you know, we're going up to 13,000 and I I was just like, this is going to be a problem. (laughs) And so um, anyway, I think I made a bad decision there, but made a good decision to go. I hauled it back down, you know, to our car and got the rest yeah. of the tent and hauled it back. That was a long day. It was about a 25 mile day or something, maybe not quite that long, but anyway, um, and that made a huge difference because, you know, we, we basically had an open air. We did have a structure, but really from a temperature standpoint, we lost our 10 degrees Fahrenheit or whatever it is the tent gives you. And, um, yeah, so you don't want to cut too much weight. You cut some corners and cut out a central piece of gear and you can really pay for it dearly later. Yeah, that's a good point. Good story. And, uh, we've, we've had many dis- heated discussions about whether or not to carry an extra set of batteries or something. <laughs> yeah. it, it always makes for a good Well, good let, let's get into gear and some other topics a little more. So I know that, um, I learned actually a lot from you on backpacks because, you know, you had done some trips uh, without me and um, had gotten some good advice. What would you advise people on, you know, picking a backpack? And and I guess the other thing that's really important if you get a good backpack is knowing how to, I know this sounds simple, but knowing how to put it on and adjusting it properly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the key thing is to size it correctly. And um, I, I would suggest having you know, someone at the store you're buying it from there to be able to help you understand if the size is correct. And while you're in the store, uh, the good ones have loads that they can put in there and simulate, you know, what a full backpack is like and, you know, wear it and feel whether it's comfortable or not. Um, but you want to, you also want to size it correctly. So, you know, if you, if you're going to be going on, uh, seven to 10 day hike, you want something much bigger than if you're going to be doing, you know, two or three day hikes. Um, you want to make size it to the minimum that you're going to be out doing. 
Um, and I think, uh, and, and there, there's always new innovations out there, but, uh, the more, the more accessible, um, areas in the backpack that you have so that you can organize it well. That's another key thing that's important to be able to uh, access, you know, your, your pump or your, you know, if you carried a book with you, if you, um, if you have your, your uh, gear to eat with, um, those things you want in one place versus if you have your, uh, your sleeping gear, um, you know, maybe deeper in that, you know, you're only going to need, uh, at night, but you, yeah, the, the accessibility is the other thing. Uh, yeah, I think that's a great point. And, um, you know, most of the, I, I, and I learned a lot of, uh, from, you know, putting on a pack and adjusting it properly, which, you know, we can't really demonstrate here, but, you know, having the adjustments, the the shoulder straps, the risers, and and also particularly the waist, obviously, because that's supposed to carry the most weight. I, mm-hmm. I had a good friend of mine, a very experienced a backpacker, but he grew up, um, you know, and did a lot of uh, backpacking in the 70s, but with external frame packs. And a few years ago, I was with him and he had an internal frame, but you know, he was really struggling the first day or two. It wasn't just out altitude. And then I looked at him, he just had his pack adjusted all wrong. You know, and I was like, okay, let's pull this, you know, tighten here. And it made a huge difference. Um, yeah. And then the, the other thing I think is what you were saying, which is I, I, I personally, you know, I put my sleeping gear at the bottom, you know, and, and usually tent hanging off the bottom. And I put the heaviest items in first so that, you know, and they always say that. So you get that weight down lower around your, your waist, your center of gravity, because right. you don't want it up on your shoulders, you know, where you're, you know, particularly, I mean, you're on a ledge or something. It's, it's somewhat unstable or in water, especially if you're crossing the stream. Um, and then the lighter stuff. So I, I think if I remember correctly, especially when we were in bear country, we would have our bear canister with our food in it you know, put that in first. And then I usually put my clothes in some sort of uh, plastic you know, rucksack or, or even trash bag that, you know, kind of next on top that has some weight. And then, like you said, the other things you need access to, uh, particularly yeah. like, you know, if you're going to cook lunch, or your food or whatever, or your water pump kind of on top that easy to get to. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the other thing I like too on packs is having a um, if you have some sort of day pack accessory or a lid that that pops off, I find that super handy as well. And also, just to put your little tools in there, or like you said, if you, your your glasses or whatever it is, yeah, you can, or your you know energy bar, you can get access to quickly. You you had that pack that you could put your water in the top of it. It was kind of uh, convenient. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. held that. Which that I guess technically violated the rule a little bit of having some weight, weight up top yeah. but you know it, 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 it wasn't that bad so it, it puts in a location that it's easy to draw water out yeah. of so it's kind yeah. of above your your throat and yeah i thought it was a good design yeah and then um mentioned bear canister i don't know if you have any thoughts on that of course that depends a lot where you are there are bears in the area um, yeah yeah the bear canister is it, it's convenient to have one um it, it's uh, you know, actually easy and that you don't have to take the time to hang your food at night. Um, I think generally they're recommended over around 10,000 feet where for the reason that it's, it's hard to find a tree, uh, tall enough and the right structure to be able to, uh, hang the food. So, um, I think if you're, yeah, if you're in high country, you're going to want to use it. And 
even even if you're lower than that, it's it's an alternative to just make it easier at night. Um, yeah, in some places like the Sierras, you know, bears figured out how to, you know, if you're hanging it, they were getting up there anyway, you know, pulling on the rope and, you know. I've heard that through. too. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I think it's mandated there. Now, that, that's a really good point, and I think the other key is keep it far away from, you know, your campsite. You know, I think they say 100 yards or more ideally. Um, yeah, I like them to just sit on too and, uh, you know, yeah. put your boots on or whatever you're, whatever you're doing. Yeah. The one challenge I always had, and I learned this in one of our most recent trips we did was, um, you know, we usually take, uh, talk about food here in a minute, but we usually take dehydrated food, but, you know, they have air in there. And so mm-hmm. it, it limited what you get in the bear canister. But what I started doing is just make a very, you know, for the food that we knew we were going to eat, make a very mm-hmm. tiny hole, you know, in there to get the, cause you know, in a couple of days, it's not going to matter. It's not going to go stale on you. I mean, it's dehydrated to begin with, and uh, that really helped to compress it down, and then I could get a lot more in there. So, yeah, that's a good point. Um, I have heard you can use them for uh, washing machines too. If you oh. if you're out for a while and you want to wash your clothes, you just put some water in there and put your clothes in, and you know, shake them, shake them. That's a great idea. I, I guess you could even wash your dishes that way. We've never used it like that, but yeah, yeah you certainly yeah. could. Yeah, yeah. They, they do add some weight, but. You know, they are really sturdy. Like you said, having a seed at times is nice, uh, particularly if you're above the tree line or you happen to be in an area there's no rocks, it's just grass. You know, that that makes a big difference, particularly around a campfire. Um, we mentioned earlier a little bit about footwear. You know, one of the big things about uh, in addition to being dry, which I think is a huge deal if you're in, you know, high country, or particularly really inclement weather, walking through snow, you know, having a Gore-Tex line boot not having something that's old and particularly have holes because those seams even on the best boots um i had a really high quality italian boot and eventually you know that failed as well so that's important but i think the biggest thing most people particularly if they're not out doing this all the time are blisters and i know you kind of have some trade secrets about that maybe you could share yeah on uh on blisters um i i used to get them I used to get them sometimes and I know that traditionally the advice is, Hey, wear a second pair of socks, silk socks underneath your normal socks. And that helps. I, it probably does, but, um, from, I, I forget how, how we figured this out, but, um, wearing a pair of gaiters for me seems to keep dirt and, and sand from getting into my boots and from my experience, the, the biggest cause of blisters is actually, uh, on a, on a, when you're hiking all day long on trails that inevitably you get some small amount of debris into your shoes and it just wears against your feet. And by the end of the day, you get blisters. And by even in perfect conditions, by wearing a pair of, uh, tight gaiters, and I'm not talking small, I'm not talking, um, large snow gaiters that go up to your knees, but like a, a small pair of tight silk gaiters that just go around the top of your boot and then to your ankle um, really can eliminate completely eliminates blisters for me. And um, so I won't, I won't hike without them and I'd, I'd recommend it to anybody. Yeah, that's a great tip. You shared that with me. Um, yeah. You know, I had problems for quite a few years and, you know, I got through it usually, but 
um, that definitely helped. Uh, the other mm-hmm. thing, of course, is that, you know, not having a poor fitting boot is like the worst case. And I, I always go a half size or so larger than probably right. what I need because I know I can add an extra pair of socks, you know, yeah. um, or lace them up a little tighter, but particularly in the toe box area. And, um, and depending on what terrain we are, you know, if we're going all up, you know, hill, then I, I may do a little bit um, tighter on the way up, you know, lace my boots up a little tighter because I don't want my Achilles every time I step up to be rubbing up against the back of my boot. You know, I've had, and that's not the worst blister to have because you can, you know, put some tape over or whatever. Um, and then on the way down for doing a long descent, I might um, loosen them just uh, a little bit. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think as long as there, you have enough room, particularly in width and you, you know, your toes just aren't crammed in there. And then the other thing is you, you mentioned, um, you know, I, I think like REI and these stores call them liners. I don't know if they sell them anymore, but you don't even have to get those. If you have like your dad or granddad, probably now those old nylon socks that are really thin people you swear the office, those are fantastic for liners. I, I learned that from my old uh, basketball coach. Mm-hmm. Um, trick um and actually before that we used to put um soap on the outside of our uh, socks um and the reason and put in the shoes of course shoes weren't near as good back then as they are today but the idea was i think the most important thing is you know you're going to get some foot movement so you want your socks moving inside the the boot you don't want your socks stuck to the insole of the boot and then your your foot being the part that slides because then you're getting the abrasion on your friction on your skin, and then that's going to eventually catch and yank. And so that that was a big learning for me. And you know, I've gotten a few small ones, you know, here and there, but nothing really significant. If I have the right boots, like you said, wearing gaiters, some sort of liner, that eliminates probably ninety to ninety five percent of them for me. And and just a few other points, which should be obvious, but don't uh, buy your boots and break them in before you go on the hike that you care about. Mm. Um, I think a lot of people will buy a new pair of boots and then uh, they they break them in on their hike and it, it it they find out that they don't need it. They either don't fit right or they're not adjusted correctly, but they, you know, they end up getting blisters. Um, and then uh, you weight wise, the shoe is one ounce is equal to like a pound or more of weight on your body. So you, you definitely want to, as you said before, I, I forgot about the boots, but you definitely want a good pair of boots and you want uh, light boots. I think the trend is the lighter, the better. Uh, not the, you know, I, I know a lot of people go for the big, heavy uh, waterproof boots, but um, I'm gravitating towards a lighter version more, you know, for the summertime. And uh, I think that's true. And I, I was just about that it, i think it depends on the time of year if i'm in colder yeah. and certainly snow i want the heavier more rugged and definitely yeah. waterproof but you know what like in the summers a lot of people do these through hikes or you know doing on the pct uh, pacific crest trail you know and they're doing them in tennis shoes I, I wouldn't go that far myself but i can understand the thinking behind it. i think you're right yeah um yeah. and the one other thing came to mind this is a little more particular to me i've got really flat feet so having the right insole, you know, having a wide enough boot, I have wide feet and flat feet. And sometimes those arches really bother me because I don't have, I have almost no arch. And so, you know, you want to, ha- or if you have other problems with your arches or you need orthotics or whatever to make sure you have those fitted properly. Now, having said all this, it's like, 
we're a bunch of sissies because in the old days, you know, they just had a you know piece of leather strapped to the bottom of their foot, you know, or yeah. Native Americans walking around in you know whatever moccasins or whatever. So we have it easy. But since we're most people these days are are tenderfoot, you know, walking out there, it, it does make a big difference. Yeah, it's true. Um, uh, and then the, I, the other the other one last thing just to add is that you know I, I would definitely recommend taking something for to treat a blister, you know, either various sorts of, you know, band-aids that are specially made for that. And the ones with ovals with the whole, I, I don't know. I never had much luck with that, but I even, even though it weighs a little bit, I would, I would bring the liquid bandage or even super glue that you can, you know, glue it back together and keep the the top skin on or replace the top skin. If it broke like the liquid bandage um, that definitely helps some as well as medical tape, uh, the training tape that um, trainers use, uh, particularly if you get one on the Achilles or something that that's a, makes it an easy way to treat and pretty much just makes it a non-issue. Yeah. So, um, Hey, let's talk a little more about quickly about clothing and, and what, you know, we've learned over the years and, you know, there's the old saying about, you, you mentioned earlier about layering, which is absolutely true. Uh, you know, there's no doubt about that for a variety of reasons, um, you know, one of the things I learned and in, in from the survival stuff is, you know, regulating your body temperature is so important as well as your, your moisture loss. And, and particularly, obviously, if you're in colder climates, again, not getting, you know, wet, not getting soaked. So, you know, the whole thing about cotton kills, um, I think I remember one of our trips, I think it was that same Sierra trip with the tent. Um, I, I, one of us, I think it was me, I'd had a bug coming in and then you, you had a cotton shirt on we got high and you got soaked and the next day you were sick. And so, um, I think from then on, we kind of, uh, obviously always went to either synthetics or, you know, obviously wool, I think is a great choice, particularly smart mm-hmm. wool, you know, the old school yeah. wool was not very comfortable, but that's all changed. Yeah, no, it's true that synthetic materials are, are, uh, much better for wicking water and, and uh, staying dry. Yeah. Yeah. And I think having the, you know, having that insulating layer below that doesn't get soaked, that'll wick moisture and then the waterproof yet still breathable on top is that's just a really good way to go. And again, if you're in cold country, making sure you keep your head warm, you know, that's, that's such, I mean, it's some incredible thing. You hear different numbers I've read and and my survival instructor that I, I work with, you know, some of the data is changing, but whatever it is, whether it's 80%, 85%, you know, 60% is a huge amount of heat you lose through your head. And yeah. I, I, I mean, personally, I sleep with a, uh, with a cap on at night, uh, one that's long enough that when it's bright in the morning, I can just pull it down over my eyes. Um, but, uh, e- you know, even with a sleeping bag that you can get, you know, cocoon in, I think it's useful. It, you still have that extra protection. So um, I agree with you totally. Uh, you want a, a good hat to wear, uh, keep warm with. I usually take a little Gore-Tex hat as well, in addition, for two reasons. I mean, one, if it rains, obviously, but secondly, just to keep the sun off, because a lot of people, I think, forget this. You know, you go into altitude, you're not used to living there. I mean, you can get some really bad burns. Uh, mm-hmm. and particularly, you know, it's warmer, you know, you want to be in short sleeves a lot of times during the day, you know, particularly if you're working hard, um, so you're not sweating profusely and getting soaked. And so that was a big one for me. And I guess along with that, taking some sunscreen for your arms as well, uh, nose, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Sun, sun is a 
problem. Yeah, I, the one other thing I would add too is always having, you know, unless you're really trying to do ultralight thing, having at least one change of clothes or extra set, just, you know, again, you get soaked or something tears or rips or falls apart, um, that pardon the pun, you're not leaving yourself exposed <laughs> to that situation. Uh, so I, I think that's really important. What about, um, what about at night? Uh, what do you, tips at you know staying warm again let's say you're at altitude it's really cold you're inside your tent what what do you do what are some of your strategies you've learned um okay i normally will when i get in my tent uh i like to sleep in a different set of clothes than i've been hiking in so i'll, I'll have a sleeping clothes and a hiking clothes and then you know kind of strategically maybe on the last day of hiking just hike in the clothes that I've been sleeping in. Um, but, uh, especially socks. So the first thing I do is I'll change my socks and depending on how cold it is, I might bring, uh, a, uh, set of long johns to sleep in. Um, I find it much warmer to sleep in clothes in my bag. Um, but if it's cold enough, I'll also bring a bivy bag. So a bivy bag is, is a, a bag that's designed to go outside your sleeping bag. I think that adds typically 10 or 15 degrees. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's, you know, changing, changing into a dry set of clothes once you get in the tent, uh, allowing your, uh, you know, I'll, I'll take the liners out of my boots, which oftentimes are wet or damp and, you know, let those dry at night and, um, and then, um, and then rotating my socks. Uh, I, I will say that the, the mm. socks are the thing I usually take. I'm guilty of taking like if I'm on a seven day hike, five five pairs of socks. Um, they're it's they're the most indispensable uh, piece of clothing. I think they're you know they're on your feet, um, and yeah, you have to be com- your feet have to be comfortable. Yeah, that's a good point. We kind of left uh, glossed over that earlier with the blisters, but it really is because you know socks get dirty and crusty, and um, that yeah. that certainly helps. And you just feel better, and also ties into your point though that you know with gaiters on, you you're going to get less dirty. Um, right. You know, with with those on, which is going to help maintain your socks a little longer than they, or maybe a lot longer than they normally would. So. Yeah, for me, the um, the warmth thing, the, the two big things I kind of learned is, again, if you're in really cold conditions, um, is one is, you know, don't take your clothes off, certainly inside the tent, but uh, I've done this before, even taking it off inside the sleeping bag, getting in your bag and then taking them off. So you, A, you don't get cold and B, the the kind of rustling around and it is difficult that actually builds up heat. And so you get off to a good start in the night. Um, yeah. uh, that's one thing. The other thing is, you know, have a good sleeping pad um, and whether it's your, you know, uh, foam, you know, closed cell foam, or I, I actually use the little bitty air mattress um, that you get super lightweight, very easy to blow up, uh, easy to decompress in the morning. Um, I, I love those things. I would never, ever, though, carry a, a larger air mattress. I mean, one, they weigh a ton. But two, even though air is is a really good insulator, I, I've just noticed even staying in people's homes that if you're on an air mattress that's, you know, let's say four inches thick or something, six inches, man, those things just suck the energy out of you. And I, I, I'm guessing it's due to convection, 
because, you know, there's enough air in there to circulate. And so the, the cold air from the ground. And so, but boy, those mm-hmm. things the the small ones don't seem to do that. Um, and, uh, and then I guess the one other thing is uh, you mentioned a bivy sack, which those are great. I, I've learned you have to be careful with those again, really cold conditions um, and dry where the, the dew points really low that I have woken up a number of times where man might, and this is especially poor if you have a down bag, which they don't make so much anymore. I think they've gone to mostly synthetic fibers now, but uh, man, bag can get soaked on the outside, you know, and then you got to hang it out. You're going to get a late start because you definitely don't want to pack a wet bag. You know, it's another thing in the morning, each morning you get up, you know, breaking camp, um, you know, you want to hang your bag out, but that's, that's another thing. That's kind of tricky. Um, we also, I know you and I both bring, um, what are those emergency, um, I forget what they call those emergency warm, um, yeah, the blankets. aluminum foil yeah. blankets. Yeah, yeah. Those things are, I think we nicknamed them the microwave cause man, yeah. they heat you up like that. They're fantastic. Yeah. Um, but I think if I remember correctly, and I know this is probably isn't the directions, the way to do it is, um, I would put that, I would actually put that, if I remember correctly, on my body and then put that inside my sleeping bag. Um, it radiated the heat next to me, and I might sweat a little bit, but I'd rather that thing get wet than my bag. Now, obviously, I don't want to get soaked personally, but I, I didn't have that happen. But if I put it on the outside of my bag, boy, it would just, you know, it would trap all that moisture in my bag, and I'd, you know, it'd be no breathing. So um, that that was one yeah. thing. That, those those things are indispensable, though. I I think they're lightweight. They do take up a little bit of room. But if you're going to high country and you're afraid you might run in some really cold weather, those those really are a lifesaver. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, what um, kind of switching gears here? What do you think? You know, the important aspects are when you you know you're in really anywhere, desert, high country, but about water and, you know, in terms of just kind of strategies to approach that uh, about procuring and, and purifying water. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, water, I mean, water is, you know, on the survival spectrum, I think it comes up uh, pretty early. Number one, uh, you can, uh, you can live for three days without water. Um, 30 days without food and, uh, you know, this, I forget yeah. what the other one is. Well, yeah, I think water's second. I think exposure, exposure is the first one, you know, and, if you're, yeah, and, but yeah, water's near the top of the list for and sure. And 300 days without love, you know. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, so you, you need to have a source of water, you know, it's something that you need to plan out and, and, and you plan it out with every hike a little bit differently. Um, some of the places I've hiked in Texas where, uh, there is no sources of water, then, you know, you, you need to plan on bringing your water with you and you're talking, I don't know, at least a gallon per day. Um, so if it's a, if it's a three or four day hike, it's, you know, it's a significant amount of water in your pack and it really slows you down the first few days, but you can't take a chance on that. You know, you need to, and, and one strategy in a case like that is to cash your water, uh, on your route, if it's possible, which I've done before, if it's a, you know, circuit, you, you can drive to one area on the edge of the park and put some water there. Um, it's, it's a reasonable thing to do. Uh, I, I've been on hikes like in Arizona, or, you know, we went on one that, where there's rivers and 
there's actually a lot of water. It's just that depending on your hiking path, you're, you know, you're maybe you have three days where there might not be that much. So in that case, I think if you have enough uh, storage, you know, in your bag that you, you, you're able to pump water while you're at a river, you know, and then plan it out so that you have enough until the next source of water. Um, it, it has to be something that you're thinking about as you're looking at the map. Um, and then probably the other thing that's good to have, you know, is it, is it really necessary, um, is, is a second source. So like the iodine tablets or another purifier. I'm not, I'm not that big on it myself, but, um, I had to say it because I think you, you know, you're, you're more of a, a, a proponent for that. Well, I, I just think having a second one, I think that's a really good point. Um, it's funny you mentioned too, you're talking about Arizona. I, I, I think I know the trip you were talking about. Um, if it's the one we did together, it's yeah, you can go several days potentially, you know, or maybe you have an ephemeral stream. And so you need to think about that and have a plan. Yeah. Or in our case, you get to the source and it's frozen. Solid. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. that was and, another thing that happened. Yeah. Tell that story. That's a good story. Yeah. Well, that was um, it, it was a seat basically uh, at the top of the mountains in southern Arizona, but it was in the winter, and I think winter had arrived a bit early there. And I mean, it was cold at night. It was you know fifteen twenty degrees anyway. And so um, someone had made a little, almost like a well out of where the seat came out, and there was a lid. And uh, we had gotten water the night before, and I just, you know, really tired, wasn't thinking. I made a mistake, and I replaced the lid on there, and the next morning we came in, it was frozen solid. And um, I, I think we worked quite a while, and I think we were thinking about even giving up. And I was like, no, let's let's keep trying. And I, I think we finally found a, a decent – they'd had a forest fire in that area, so all the wood was burned and charred and not, you know, it, it broke off easily. But I think we found a post or something that – we finally able to pry that lid off and then we levered it off. Yeah. yeah. And I think then we like, were able to, it was still frozen on top, but we broke through and then got some water. So, yeah. um, but point being is that, I mean, a, I made a mistake, but B, even if I hadn't, and it was just frozen, you have to have a backup plan. And so. Right. Um, and we know. just, we, we should have thought about, Oh, it's going to get cold at night. Yeah. Let's, let's uh, make, put something on this lid. So it will, we, we can open it up easily the next morning. Um, I also totally agree with you about the two things. And I think the two methods should probably be different. So, you know, pump generally, I I think is probably overall the best just for a variety of reasons. You can stick it in a small area. You know, it's a good purifier. You need to make sure your filter's in good shape, either have a new one, you know, if, if you're going on a long trip and you've used it before or have a replacement, of course, that's going to add weight if you carry two filters. Um, But then the second one is probably you know maybe when I mean, we've done that before you and i have, have carried two pumps but that's obviously extra weight um and and because part of the we didn't address this earlier but it's nice when you have a second person there's certain things you're not going to bring to of like a tent you can split the weight so having a second pump but iodine's light i know a lot of people don't might like the taste of it i don't mind it too much you can get the the other chemical that removes it but i think that's important too because there are certain areas where you know you may not be able to pump you know you, you may not you might just have let's say a drip or something right yeah. um and uh and then i think the other thing too is having enough containers and are reliable i mean 
I know you're not, it's not ideal to drink out of plastic or whatever, but if you're up there for a few days and you can bring one or two extra lightweight plastic bottles, that's a godsend. I mean, you know, you can carry a lot of additional water. There's very little weight penalty in that. Um, so I always try to do that. I know the, was it the Nalgene bottles? Um, you I'm know, a fan. I'm actually yeah, a fan. And, and, they're, and they're really good. That's my yeah. primary, but I usually carry one or two extra just, you know, I'll, I'll buy some uh, water at a store, you know, and at least a one liter or something. And maybe I drink it, you know, before I go and then, but I just have that as a backup container. Um, and I, I think that's another key too. You mentioned about caching water. If you're in a dry area and even if you're not, just make sure to hydrate sufficiently before you start the trip and each day, you know, that's, it's just, it's not fun to start off, you know, and you don't have enough water and then, you know, you get dehydrated or the, 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 the Creek you're going to, or the stream is dried up, you know, it, it's not running and that's, that's not a fun situation. And it's not a bad idea to try to stop drinking water before you go to bed because uh, the one, the one thing that does get cold is when you have to get out of your tent and urinate it in the <laughs> middle of the night, but that, we all have to do it. So, I mean, that's certainly true. It, I have a really, I, this didn't happen to me, but I have two really good friends who were backpacking in Southern New Mexico, really dry area. They were actually going to a river. They were hiking in trying to go fish and, um, this kind of ropes in several things. Uh, one of them, which we'll maybe talk about near the end here, but, um, they got confused on the route and had really heavy, uh, packs, you know, they're in a desert climate and it, it was springtime. So it's one of those things you're in the sun, it's boiling hot. You go in the shade, you're cold. And they were getting worn out really up and down undulating trail. And so, you know, they got to a point and they're like, Hey, let's, let's dump half our water. And they did. And then the trail was mismarked and, and they, and I've been on that trail. I know what they're talking about. <laughs> um, and, and the guidebook, unfortunately didn't cover that, the one that they had, and they were another, I don't know, four or five hours out there with no water and boiling thing. And they were, they were really getting worried because if they took the wrong route, they weren't going to end up at the river. And they had a debate, um, kind of a fight on the trail a little bit. And, uh, I shouldn't say a fight, but in intense discussion, because they both thought they were right. And fortunately, the the party who prevailed was correct. And basically got down to the river and, you know, almost started like drinking directly out of the stream. But um, they, they both said one in particular that it kind of wrecked them the rest of the trip. I mean, next three or four days, they had a headache and just, you know, felt pretty bad. So, you know, those those things seem like, oh, you know, it's OK. I'm not going to get into trouble, but they really can turn bad quickly. Yeah. You know, I would just like to expand on something you just said, and it's the importance of communication when you're hiking with multiple people. Um, it's, you know, it's one of those soft skills and you think, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm not in a business environment. So why would communication be important? Um, I think it, it turns into one of the key things. It's a key survival point. Um, uh, how well you communicate as team members during the hike. And um, I mean, it's, you know, it's a fun thing, right? You, you're, you know, you're, you're joking and, and having a good time, but at the same time um, there's so many situations I can think of that we've been out there and either, you know, communicated mostly well, but then sometimes some of our biggest errors are just communi caused by communication. Yeah. Especially again, 
you know, in the back country, particularly in the mountains, weather changes, you know, the best laid plans go to hell. Right. And, and then if you're not communicating or you're not paying attention and, you know, we've both been guilty of that, or you're in an area where the you know, trails mismarked, or we've been in fire areas and that throws everything off. Yeah. You can make some mistakes. Well, and Yeah. yeah you know, I'm, I'm, so, so the one I'm thinking of is we were out with my brother-in-law who's, um, was a, you know, rather overweight guy and really uh, hiking like a champ. And, um, and, you know, we had spent a lot more time together. And um, as we were going along, I, you know, in my mind, you were, you had kind of taken command of the map and were telling us where we were going. So I, I, I thought I had made an attempt to tell you, Hey, I think, the trail goes that way, you know, there's, I think I see the sign and, you know, I don't know, you didn't hear what I said and we ended up going the other way. And it was, it was nasty it was Arizona or no, it was New Mexico, uh, New Mexico. Yeah. It, it was, it was a burned out forest fire region. And we probably went about an hour over, you know, down logs, down charred logs and Rose, and all the, and, yeah, all the roses and bramble. It was awful. It, yeah. it was awful. And, you know, and we ended up getting to what seemed like a dead end. And, um, you know, and then and then we had the communication of, uh, you know, me saying, hey, I told you back there and you saying, you know, you you haven't been telling me you haven't been talking to me. And, and you know, it's just it was we weren't aligned. Right. And who was leading and and uh, how, how we were listening to each other. And, you know, it it cost us two hours of 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 um pain and effort but yeah and that, and that was a mild thing yeah that obviously those mild. situations could be a lot worse but i, I think that's a great point um yeah you know you, you kind of have to think of it i mean you, you have to think in terms of team out there you, yes. you really do you know it's a buddy system i mean it's like you're counting on each other people have been in the military obviously know about that you know you're on patrol or whatever you know guy next to you is depending on you for his life and vice versa and you know, everything's going fine. It, it doesn't really matter, but things turn wrong. You have to be able to depend on each other. And, and to okay. your point, to do that, you have to communicate well, you know, there's, right. Right. there's no way around that. I, yeah. this is a little different when bad, but I, you know, I've had um friend, a um, couple of friends who were, you know, big kayakers and got involved in some nasty fronts that came down and, you know, one of them, fell in and got hypothermia and get out, build a fire. And, you know, you have to be able to work together in those kind of situations that can happen on a mountainside as well, you know, or somebody has an accident or whatever. So that's, that's a great point. Yeah. Well, Hey, we were, we were uh, hiking somewhere and uh, we talked about climbing up the Ridge, you know, and we, we talked it out with each other and said, well, it looks like there might be a lot of lightning up there and um, you know, it's totally exposed up on the Ridge. Why don't we take the lower route? And I think we got to a point maybe 30 minutes later and looked up and, and the lightning was just crashing down on the mountain. And I, I would say, you know, that was a, a story where we communicated well with each other to make the right decision. And most of the time, I think we do that. Uh, it's just that was a good point. Yeah, that was a strange storm. Yeah. And it started sleeting, if I remember correctly. Oh, yeah. 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 I, I had something I mean, similar like that in South Dakota and we had pitched 10 on the top of this uh, more like a hill than a mountain and it got kind of dark and all of a sudden I started looking around it wasn't stormy yet and uh saw these trees that were just had been you know uh popped off 
just broken off and charred. And I was like, yeah, this is probably not a great area. And so we decided to move tent. And sure enough, about 45 minutes later, man, it just started lightning like crazy, popping everywhere. Wow. And so, you know, we had, we had talked about it, which, you know, really yeah. kind of saved us potentially. Yeah. Yeah. I think we just identified another one weather. Yeah. That's one of the as, biggest as a ones. risk. Yeah. Yeah. I think for weather, you know, checking beforehand, knowing what the conditions are and being particularly the mountains, you know, for me in the mountain, because it's with a few exceptions, you know, if you're in high mountains, any time of the year, it can change. It can change on you quickly. Um, and you really need to be aware of that and and have a plan and know how to handle yourself. And if things go adverse, um, you know, know, know what you do. So um, uh, let's see, just a couple of things kind of related around the more the 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 camping and gear thing mm-hmm. is about uh cooking and and just kind of food in general so you know there's a lot of different strategies on this i personally i think you do too you know kind of for longer trips anyway like to take dehydrated food simply because and you do need water of course you need access to water but and it does take quite a bit of water i think people underestimate that it really eats mm-hmm. into your water but it's easy to prepare it's light it's guaranteed it doesn't spoil i I think generally speaking, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, less likely, uh, to be sought after by animals and it's not always the case, but, um, you know, it's easy to put in a bear canister, et cetera. Um, and we always just bring a small stove and kind of the minimum of, of cooking gear. Um, and so I, I can't remember how we came to that, but I, I think it was more out of a weight thing. And if I remember correctly, we even got to the point where we'd bring a couple of small cups. We could use like oatmeal in the morning or, or you know, for making I, – I, I like making pine needle tea. Yeah. <laughs> Nut needles, it's nothing like that at the end of the day. It's but we're, we have minimal cleanup, and then we would even eat out of the pack sometimes, you know, whatever the, the vendor is. Or if you make your own even, um, you have to have the right container. But – I don't know if you have thoughts about that. Um, no, I, uh, yeah, I think that's one area that we really are, uh, excel in, um, the, the small packs of oatmeal in the morning. You can just, uh, add the water right in and stir it up and you don't really need to cook it. Um, that's my opinion. I think we kind of do that. We each do that. Uh, but two of those little bags in the morning are fine for breakfast just to kind of get you going. Um, I never really bought those, uh, those freeze dried breakfast, breakfast meals. I really don't think you need it. Um, and then, yeah. And then the, the, in general, the, the two portion, uh, dried freeze dried foods are really like sufficient for one person. If you're doing a, a long hike, I think, um, although I'll say later in my hike, I probably, kind of get sated on the freeze-dried food and so i'll i'll eat half a bag and then either eat the other half for dinner or you know throw it away and so um but yeah that's you know that's all you need you can eat right out of the bag uh you cook the cook you boil the water and just pour pour the water into the bag and uh stir it up and it takes about seven minutes and um your meal is ready you can you just need a fork or a spoon yeah, I'm a big believer in that as well. To me, that helps on the sort of minimalist or ultralight version of going. I know a lot of people feel differently about cooking. They like to have a full-on campsite and 
you know, cooking real meal and, you know, and, and I understand that and adds yeah. enjoyment to it. I think if you're doing a lot of miles, uh, one of the things we haven't talked about is, and I think when we first started, even if you're good at this, man, it takes a long time to break camp in the morning, you know, it not does. so long to yeah. set up, but, and to get everything packed up, you know, dry your sleeping bag out, you know, deflate your air mattress, pack the tent up, clean everything, change your clothes, you know, brush your teeth, all that stuff. Um, you know, put your pack back together, you know, pump water if you need to, um, you know, that's for us anyway, and I think we're pretty fast at it. You're not getting out of there in 20 minutes, you know? So, um, I, I personally, particularly like you said for breakfast and then at the end of the day, I I'm not big on, you know, having to do a big cleanup after dinner. So the the one thing I will say I learned, and I, I saw this in Africa experience, this is, I do think it's important to do a good job of whatever pots, pans, utensils you have is to clean them well. And uh, I think the best thing is to boil them. But I think even if you don't boil them, just having hot water, you know, if you have your little stove, turn it on for a while. Um, That's another thing too on the cooking gear is, you know, we always use a little propane thing. And if, if you're using dehydrated food and you don't just turn that thing up on high when you're boiling your water, they last a long time if you have a good stove. So that's a, that's a good weight saving thing. But I think turn on hot water and, you know, getting your stuff clean, using some soap, um, you know, I usually, usually end up with a little bit of stomach issues at some point on the trip. And I, you know, who knows why, but I saw an Africa group that was traveling and next morning they were all out and everybody was sick and all that. And kind of the leader was like, I told you guys, you know, you're not washing your stuff. And you could see their utensils and were on the ground and the dirt and whatever. And they were like dog sick, you know, and that was a real learning point to me. Um, so I, I think cleanliness, uh, you know, is really yeah. important and that's cause you, you don't want to go down in the high country with, you know, getting, no. you know, well, some bot- botulism or something else. One other thought, I uh, I went uh, canoeing in the Boundary Water region one, uh, once, and that guide sent us off with a steak dinner and eggs for the morning on the first day. So, you know, you really can't travel for five or six days with steak dinners every night, but it's actually an option if you, you know, if you wanted to, if you really are a gourmet and you want to go out that first night with a steak dinner, I think it'll stay good for 12 hours and... <laughs> That would that would be the one possibility is start your first day out with a big big meal. I've done um, that a couple of kayak trips. Yeah, that, that it, yeah, yeah I mean, it, it is a good way to start. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of rude awakening the next day, but you know whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, speaking of that, um, in terms of cooking, what about fire? Now, obviously, fire depends on where you are. Some places don't allow it, or if there's a burn ban, et cetera. But I, I'm personally, I think you are too, a big fan of fire. Sometimes you get in late, you know, and it's, you just want to go to bed and all that, but yeah. I think it's great. It warms up and, you know, obviously if you're cold, um, yeah. your extremities, uh, but it's also just a, a mood improver. Um, it, you know, guy really I studied is. under John Young, he's a huge fan of that. You know, you look at our ancestry, they're always around campfire and, you know, again, whether maybe you're making some pine needle tea or just, you know, telling stories or whatever, but how do you feel about fire? And what do you, what are your preferred methods for starting fire? You know, when you're on a long trip like that? Yeah. I mean, you see the, I, I agree with you on the, um, what it does for your attitude, you know, and especially if you're in any kind of survival situation. And I mean, it may be just, you're having a crappy trip and, 
you know, you're a little bit down or you're cold, but that fire is an attitude changer. Um, and you know, the, the problem is, is I'm not really into, uh, starting a fire with sticks or, you know, or uh, doing a certain, you know, proving that I can start fire in the most difficult way possible. So for me, I have gravitated around bringing cotton balls and, um, and Vaseline. So I'll, you know, they're, they're handy for other things. Uh, but you, if you have that in your pack, then you just dip, dip a big cotton ball in Vaseline and put that under really any kind of kindling. And I find in any weather conditions, even pretty wet, I can start a fire that way. Um, yeah, the the one exception I found is in the tropics that cotton ball will get loaded with humidity unless if you can keep it sealed, okay, then you know yeah. then it won't absorb the moisture and and I I agree with you that's my favorite way to start as well. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I'm not big into doing bow drill when you've done you know 14 miles. You know, at the I mean, you, I know you can do it. <laughs> you you actually have, have that skill, but yeah, I'm not. No, it's, it's yeah. Um, no, I, I think the other thing too is obviously knowing whether, you know, fire is allowed, of course, um, knowing the conditions or sometimes you don't know this weather changes, but are you in a wet area, you know, yeah. is fuel readily available? You know, sure. is it dry? Yeah. I remember one of our New Mexico trips, uh, we were trying to start and it was exceedingly difficult because there had been a pretty good thunderstorm. We were in the monsoon season and I think it took, Man, it took hour and a half to get the fire going, if I remember correctly. Uh, but we kept at it, and I think pine needles were kind of the the savior. the 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 couple learnings I've had on fire is assuming that you know you have, and and I like having two starting methods. So you know, it could be a cotton ball, maybe a striker, but you know, at least a couple of different methods. Um, uh, I always carry a lighter. Um, you know, you can't fly with them, but you know, you can pick one up at the convenience store. Yeah. Make sure that it works. Get a good one. Um, that's probably not a bad thing to have a duplicate of to carry a second one just in case. Um, but is making sure that you have enough wood and resource, particularly if you're using fire to stay warm, if you're camping outside, um, let's say you're not doing a long trip, you know, just an overnight or something is gather people go, you go through so much more wood than you think you would. And, you know, survival, all survival guys will tell you that as well. Um, my survival instructor is big on that. And then, the other thing is I think people sometimes underestimate, um, you know, you know, they, they underestimate how beneficial fire is to the mood. We talked about it earlier, but also they underestimate how hard it is to get started sometime, you know, is a big payoff. And for me, the, the biggest thing is, you know, once you have an ignition a little bit going is base is oxygen, you know, bellows, you've got to mm-hmm. keep stoking that thing and getting oxygen. So, I don't bring bellows with me, obviously, but, you know, blowing in there and because you have to build up enough heat. And if you keep blowing in there and adding fuel and blowing, adding eventually, you know, I don't want to say I've never had one. It wouldn't catch, but I know we did one around here in in Texas Hill Country, and that was similar one night. Uh, It took forever to start, but you'll get it going eventually. So, um, you know, in a survival situation, that becomes more important. You can always give up and go in your tent, you know, if you're in the mountains, but um, sure is nice to have. Well, yeah. um, Jack, let's finish up here. Just last couple of things. Uh, what do you take um, in terms of first aid and, and tools, just kind of essentials? I know that, that can go into a lot of different things, but what do you say? Hey, I, I'm absolutely going into the back country with, you know, these, these things, these two or three things or half dozen, whatever it is. I think 
I think you and I have different opinions on this. So this is probably a good one, you know, where, where we, um, where somebody else can, you know, can make their decision based on two sort of opposing viewpoints. But I, I don't take that much with me. I think, I think one of the most important survival tools is the map, you know, knowing where you are and how to get out and knowing, you know, so for me, um, never lose the map. A topo map and a compass, I think are absolutely yeah. essential. Yeah, and a compass, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and you have to know how to use them. You got to know how to read a topo oh, yeah. map, you know, yeah. know yeah. how to identify backstops, et cetera, and yeah. your exit routes, and you have to know how to use your compass. But, yeah, I mean, you, you, how many of the uh, survival situations are caused by, well, the uh, hiker got lost, you know, yeah. lost yeah. hiker. So, um, I mean, I'm thinking of this, really, this is off the cuff, but uh, the... The other survival thing, I guess, would be like um, uh, some kind of sun protection, uh, you know, the, I mean, the hat, like you said, or, or lotion. But um, I think really the sun does end up being, you know, quite dangerous um, when, especially when you're in a hot country, but also just when you're in snow, for example, you know, where there's uh, a lot of reflection coming up and, um, a chance of snow blindness or something like that. Uh, it sun protection. Um, I have, I I'm, I'm big on, um, I mean, I, I don't think we actually differ too much. I, I like having sort of a minimalist first aid slash toolkit. Um, I, yeah. and I know you're big on, I think we refer to as vitamin I ibuprofen, <laughs> which is great for a variety of things, you know, headache. Um, obviously if you have an injury or something, uh, that that's, you know, obviously it's best not take on an empty stomach, but, you know, check with your doctor. If you're on other medications, of course, some people can't take ibuprofen. Um, I also like having a topical antibiotic. In some countries you can't buy that over the counter, but you know, if you do have a bad cut or something, just best not to get an infection to begin with. Super easy to treat. It's lightweight. Whatever normal medication. I've probably taken at least a few allergy pills is a good idea just in case, you know, you get into something or, you know, whatever. It could be a plant, beehive. Um, I I take some antifungal cream just because I've had, and you know, I've had a bad experience where we in a big rainstorm. I had waterproofs on and my legs were rubbing and I got just an awful fungal infection on my legs. I mean, just like debilitating. It was really hard to walk. And, um, you know, I dried it out that night and I think I had some cream with me. I think I put some tape on actually between my legs, keep them run together after yeah. I dried out and that helped. Yeah. But, um, and then just, I, I like having a tool and, um, I know a lot of guys say, oh, you know, Swiss army knife, whatever, but I, I, I don't buy that. I, I think it's very valuable having something like that just for tweezers, um, you know, just a little tool, little scissors, you know, it, it does add some weight, but it comes in handy. Um, also I like taking a razor blade, um, that's handy as well. Uh, the other big thing for me is, um, you know, paracord. 550 that's just that's a lifesaver um, yeah. you know does so many well, things you, you hang yeah, your I food mean, if you, yeah yeah <laughs> it literally was, was a lifesaver for you you know that's what i was like, gonna say yeah that's yeah you want to tell that story kind of a, no which one i don't know yeah. <laughs> which one well you I, I think i remember on, on one trip um i had something come up and we split and you we were in the sierras you went back in and had a big snowstorm and oh, then yeah. kind of got <laughs> sort of stranded on the way out and um, I, I tied remember, myself off. 
Yeah, you used yeah. it to tie yourself off to a tree when you're crossing a very dangerous stream, and it it saved you, right? Yeah, it did save me. Yeah, yeah, and and I think water crossings is probably the for me now. I recognize it as the biggest danger on the trail to uh, loss of life is crossing rivers or falling into them. Uh, I think that's really something you need to watch out. Yeah, because you just got back from the Sierras, which they had, I think, all-time record snowfall. And oh, you yeah. said it was still just packed in, right? Six feet oh, of snow. Six feet of snow. And, and so with all the snow melting, I mean, all the rivers were impassable. Uh, you know, what were normally creeks um, made it very difficult to hike or, you know, hike through. Um, yeah, that's probably a whole nother discussion talking about, yeah. you know, what to do in in snow uh, situations. Um, but. But I, I was going to say one more thing on the um, uh, the safety items is probably the best strategy is to have your hiking partner carry all of them for you. And <laughs> it solves your weight problems, too. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's yeah, why you, we have different viewpoint on that. <laughs> yeah, you tried me. No, the, the paracord is the same. I mean, it's just shoestring breaks. I, I actually was in uh, the Tetons once, and it was late in the day. And I made a mistake. I didn't have my, my, I was setting up camp, didn't have my tent. Um, I'd hiked in like, I don't know, 10, 15 miles, not that far in. Setting up my tent, I didn't have it staked down. All of a sudden, wind came up and I'd just seen a couple of brown bears, a couple of grizzlies. In fact, I'd seen a cub and um, by by itself, which is always a little scary. So I, I wanted to get in my tent and just, you know, normally they're not a problem, but if you, you know, run up on them, particularly with cubs. So, Want to get in my tent and I was hurrying. I made a mistake. All of a sudden, boom, I see my tent go like this. And I chase after it. I'm in heavy boots. I'm tired. I trip. Boom. I land on my tent, snap one of the poles. I was like, oh, and bad, you know, bad break. And uh, basically, you know, light was running out, but I used paracord and I just tied um, the, the tent pole together again. And it worked the rest of the trip. Actually, I I would add duct tape to my list. That oh is something yeah, absolutely that is useful. And I I carry a very small yeah uh, inside roll of duct tape. Yeah, um, uh, like uh, yeah. I mean, it's easy to have your shoes blow out while you're out there, and duct tape is the solution. You know, if you if the and a great way shoes. to do it, you can wrap it around a pen, which is also good to have in a piece of paper if you have to write a note. You know, something happens, you're lost. Yeah, you can just wrap it around the pen. You know, the barrel of it. Um, yeah, that, that's, you're right. Duct tape's yeah. like indispensable. Yeah. You reminded me of it. I, I don't think I had any on that trip and that's why I had to use paracord, but, um, yeah, that but, stuff just has so many uses to it and you can pull the inside strands out. Each of them I think is, has a, a test of 50 pounds. So there's just so much you can use it for. But that that's a really good illustration of how quickly your trip can go dangerously wrong is, you know, you think, oh, it was a great hiking day. I'm putting my putting my tent up in this, you know, beautiful spot overlooking the cliff. And the next minute, you know, your your tent is careening in the wind over the cliff. I mean, it it's similar things have happened to me, not not as dramatic, but um yeah. And those are the little things I think that that stick with you and you're just a little bit more careful to stick a rock on top of the, you know, the edge of it before you as you, before you walk away couple of the other essentials, definitely a good knife. I mean, I'm not saying you have to have a full on, you know, machete or whatever, but you need to have a knife that can really do something if you need it, you know, cut some wood, cut some branches, whatever. Um, It's just invaluable uh, to have that. 
um, and and get in. I don't want to get in a whole discussion. What kind of knife? I you know, there's everybody has a different view on that. But a sharp knife um, and and in a in a case, a protective uh, sleeve, you know, a sheath is very important. Um, also, if you're in bear country, you know, um, I love bears, but um, a lot of people worry about mountain lions. I'm I'm way more concerned about bears. So having bear spray or or you know a handgun if you're in an area allows it. Um, I don't like to obviously hurt wildlife unnecessarily, but you know it, it can definitely be a lifesaver. It's rare, but it happens. Uh, Especially certain areas where there are a lot of grizzlies, uh, Montana, certain yeah. areas in Montana. Are, and I, I'm actually more scared of black bears because, um, you know, grizzlies, yeah, if they have cubs, but, you know, black bears will at times actively hunt people. And so, yeah, I, I think you have to have something to deal with that. And then, yeah, lastly, you mentioned map and compass. I, I think the biggest thing, too, is just, you know, telling someone, you know, a loved one, friend, whatever, you know, where you're going, your route. And when you're coming out, um, because if something does happen, you know, you want somebody to know, you know, these days it's fairly easy. I have an older one, which is kind of heavy. I don't like carrying it, but, you know, having a GPS device or emergency beacon or something. And then um, also a really easy one, uh, particularly if you're by yourself, but even if you, you know, if you're with someone and you get split up, something happens is having a whistle. Yeah, and I think most of the newer backpacks have them built in, or you you can buy a cheap one, just clips on. But you know, you can't hear them. I mean, depending on the wind direction, that far. But sometimes you're maybe within you know a couple hundred yards, someone you have no idea, someone's out there could help you. You know, you've broken your leg or something, and so it's just to me, it's kind of dumb not to have a whistle. Um, it's just it's yeah. an easy out. So. And I'll I'll just give you a, a quick story on that. We just got back from the Sierras. I was hiking with my son and um, he brought his new dog with him and the, the dog in the morning, he was with us one minute and then we turned around and he was gone. And uh, there was, you know, there was heavy mounds of snow all around us and we had no idea what direction he went in. So if he didn't have that whistle, we probably wouldn't have been able to get the dog back. Um, but wow. it, it eventually responded to the whistle and, you know, came running back to us. Uh, yeah. I so. never thought of it from that point, but yeah. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> And I'd say the last thing is just, and, and we've done, I think, a good job of this overall, but particularly you're going to a new area, you don't know that well, is do your planning, you know, spend your time, you know, uh, get your route, get your maps, get your gear, get everything set up um, because, hey, you need it. And that's just, you're going to have a, a better time by doing that. But also be the last thing you want to do. There's this whole, you know, you get there, you're on vacation where you got limited times, it's itch you know, itchy thing, like we got to get out on the trail again. And it's so easy to forget something, you know, or do something wrong. So if you've spent that time up front, I think you greatly lessen the risk of that. Um, You know, you may have to do a final pack in the morning to keep you flown in or, you know, whatever. But um, I haven't done that planning beforehand. Um, And even little things, it may not make the difference in the trip, but um, I used to never use them. But, you know, I, I do use walking sticks now a lot of times, just easier on my knees. Um, but whatever it is you think you need, if, if you take care of that up front, then it's just so much easier when it's time to hit the trail. Cause there's always these last minute things that, you know, you haven't thought of or something changes and, um, yeah, it's just, I you forget, completely agree. You forget something, you're 20 miles in, it's, it's kind of too late at that point, you know, unless you're going to abort your trip and that's no fun. So, um, anyway. Well, hey, Jack, it's been great. You, you've uh, you've been a fantastic uh, partner over the years, hiking partner, and um, 
you've helped me out some tough situations and we've been through and it's been really enjoyable, but I've learned a lot with you and uh, yeah, highly you. recommend you it. If, if uh, anybody needs a partner to go hiking with, this is the guy he's, he's tough, man. It'll carry you out on his shoulder if something happens, <laughs> but uh Thanks. Yeah. No, I appreciate your time and Thank maybe you. we'll do this again on another topic at some point because uh, you can talk for hours on this stuff. But I think this was a good general overview. So thanks again.